This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. This week, is China stuck in a zero-Covid trap? Plus, who is in the Zack Pack and what is their influence on number 10? And finally, we glance back 70 years ago when the Queen was still a princess. First up, for this week's cover story, as the Winter Olympics kick off in Beijing, Cindy Yu looks at Xi Jinping's attempts to grapple with Covid. She joins us now, along with Ben Cowling, Chair Professor of Epidemiology at the School of Public Health, University of Hong Kong. Cindy, you write our cover story this week on China's zero-Covid policy, and you say that China seems to have got stuck in this zero-Covid trap. What's the current reality for people living in China right now? So obviously it's a very big country. I mean, I think people often forget that it's actually larger than Europe. So we're talking about a lot of different experiences at the moment. In some of the strictest lockdown, which has recently eased, but my cousin lives in Xi'an, uh, which is a kind of central China city. It had the worst outbreak by Chinese standards since Wuhan in 2020. And at that stage, people couldn't even leave their flats to go shopping. So they literally had government rations being delivered to the door, which obviously caused its own problems. Now, on the other side of the country, in somewhere like Nanjing, which the rest of my family live in, there's no COVID there at the moment. So life is pretty much as usual, but on the other end, usual usual means is by it's living by health code, which is a smartphone app, um, which is a bit like a COVID pass. If you're green, you can go to public places. If you're amber or red, you can't. And the way they determine that is through your location data and whether or not you've been to somewhere like Xi'an, for example. And then there's like a gamut of different restrictions in between. So, so the experiences really, really very much differ. And you mentioned in your piece that it's a common misconception that the central government directs all lockdowns. Is that a kind of Western view and we're sort of wrong to see it that way? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot more of the Chinese political system is devolved than people think. And that's not just in public health. You know, Chinese scholars talk about this kind of, of a fragmentation of the Chinese system. Is In some ways, it's a bit more federal than we might think. So, for example, Ben spends a lot of time in Hong Kong and Hong Kong has a different regulatory way to decide public health. In cities like Xi'an, lots of the local officials get get to have control and say over what's happening there. And in some ways that suits the central government because it means that if anything goes wrong, they've got someone to blame that is not Beijing itself. Um, and so that system, it leads to inconsistent results. It leads to sometimes results that are contradictory to each other, but it also means that the central government can have people to point to when things go wrong, which is suitable for, for them as well. Uh, ben, I'd like to ask you about what things are like in Hong Kong. At the end of last month, the Hong Kong government had to clarify that having the opinion uh, that it might be best to live with COVID is not a breach of the national security law. But a government spokesman also said that dynamic zero COVID is the best way forward for for Hong Kong. So does the city have to walk a a fine line, do you think, between trying to open up uh, but also not upsetting Beijing? Yeah, I think certainly in Hong Kong, there's a lot of attraction to the zero COVID approach. If Hong Kong could consistently stay with zero local cases, there's a possibility to have quarantine-free travel to and from the mainland. 
Before the pandemic, there were hundreds of thousands of people crossing that border every day, and now it's only a trickle. So there's enormous business advantages. A lot of people have family in the mainland. So the government's really very keen to, to have the zero COVID policy, to have it working. But at the moment, we're having a, an outbreak of Omicron and also an outbreak of Delta in the community, which are going to be tough to control. And the government's you know, still talking about how we're going to get back to zero, but uh, not for a while, I guess, unfortunately, because or, as opposed to in the mainland where, where outbreaks have been controlled pretty quickly in general, I think Xi'an was the, the longest and the most difficult to control. Uh, in Hong Kong, we're going to have trouble stopping this current outbreak because the measures we have available in Hong Kong are, are maybe not as stringent and comprehensive as in mainland cities. Even if you kill the hamsters, which um, <laughs> are the latest culprits, aren't they, Ben? Uh, well, that, that was a very interesting story. So we had a, a case detected in a, a lady who works in a pet shop. And then they tested the animals in the pet shop and found there was also COVID in a hamster. And then they, they started thinking maybe there could be a, a hamster-related outbreak. Initially, it seemed a bit far-fetched. But then they did find COVID in other hamsters. They did find other cases linked to the pet shop, including people who'd bought hamsters. And there was a genetic change in the Delta variant infection that they think may have been linked to the infection passing through hamsters. So uh, maybe a human in, in the Netherlands transmitted to a hamster. The hamster was shipped over to Hong Kong and then it started this outbreak. And the, the government asked people to hand back hamsters that had been bought before Christmas sometimes as Christmas gifts for children, asking them to hand back the hamsters to be humanely managed. And of course, the, the, the newspapers all show children crying about their, their hamster being given back uh, and what was going to happen to it. And it, it was all strange. But, but it's fascinating because I think in other parts of the world, it, it wouldn't even be looked into. But in Hong Kong, we did find that this is a, a potential route, albeit unlikely. Cindy, how is the zero COVID policy seen within China. I mean, there must be lots of Chinese people, presumably middle class people who've kind of got used to the idea that they can travel. And and how do they see it as the rest of the world opens up that they're not really able to or not with much ease able to kind of engage with the rest of the world? So for obvious reasons, public opinion polling doesn't come by very frequently in China. So anything I say coming up will, will be, you know, based on my anecdotal evidence. And it's always hard to generalise about such a large country. But from what I've seen is that actually, you know, my family and friends who are normally quite cosmopolitan, you know, go to Europe every other year and that sort of stuff, they don't really care about leaving the country. Part of the reason I think is this what I call him in the piece, this kind of cultural hypochondria, where people are kind of health obsessed anyway and terrified of being infected. And I wonder if Ben is seeing a similar thing in Hong Kong as well. But also partly it's because state media has portrayed the rest of the world as a sort of COVID hell. That, so you don't have a desire to go into the COVID hell, really. So for me as a diaspora in, in London, you know, I, I really wish the country would open back up again because because I haven't been to China since 2019. But it doesn't seem like there's much of a clamour inside. Although there does seem to be more of fatigue with lockdown, which we haven't seen before. So, for example, there's this border town um, called Reili, which is near Myanmar, and it's in its fifth lockdown. And people there mainly lived by the informal economy, border trade, both of which are not really possible under lockdowns. And so they are really struggling financially. And you see on social media this anger bubbling over, which is really fascinating to note. And one of the most interesting lines, I think, in your piece is where you talk to your family and, and, and sort of assess their response response to what, what's going on in the West. And you, and you say there's this clash between the Confucian and the Darwinian values. Can you explain what you, what you mean by that and how they see the kind of Western values? Yeah, I'm so amused by this because 
so often you hear Westerners psychoanalyzing the Chinese through Confucian values. And, you know, a lot of the time it's just very stereotypical. It's not, it's very surface level or reductive. But what we're seeing here now is that the Chinese are doing the same kind of analysis to the West and reducing the West to this kind of individualistic survival of the fittest kind of society, which we know is not the be all and end all of Western society. And by comparison, either whether it's Confucian values or communist values, the collective and, and the human life is much more important in China. And that's how the Chinese, when they look at what I call the COVID hell, when they look at what's happening outside, that's how they rationalize it because they're confused how we can just live with COVID. Ben, what are your th- thoughts about that? Do you think it's true that, that the outside world's viewed as COVID hell? I mean, if we're looking at particularly uh, the Omicron variant. You know, I think most countries now in the world have accepted that Omicron is a more contagious but a milder variant of COVID. Do you, do you see any signs that the view on the, the seriousness of COVID is starting to shift within China? I, I don't think so. And I, I would say the same for Hong Kong as well, that there's still this perception that it's a serious infection. Also, not only that there's severe cases, but there's also a lot of disruption to communities when there's a lot of COVID around. For example, I know recently the NHS was concerned that there were so many healthcare workers off sick that they couldn't deliver essential services to any of their patients, not only people with COVID. And so that's another concern that the logistical disruption, the the social disruption from having larger numbers of infections. And whenever in in Hong Kong people talk about what about living with the virus, the immediate response comes back. Look at the millions of people worldwide that have died with COVID. And it's it's so nice having no COVID in the community. Um, And and it's true, it is nice when, when case numbers are very, very low or when they're at zero. But now when, when we're having an outbreak in Hong Kong and in cities in China, when there have been outbreaks, there is a lot of disruption associated with controlling the outbreak. And we have a particular issue in Hong Kong as well. In mainland China, the vaccine coverage is now 87% of the population. That's one of the highest coverages in the world. In Hong Kong, we also have above 70% coverage with two doses. But in elderly, peculiarly, the vaccine coverage is very low. Among our, our residents who are 80 years of age or older, the vaccine coverage is only 20%, 2-0, coverage in over 80s. And that's a real threat now that we're having Delta and Omicron circulating in the community in increasing numbers. We're likely to find out just how mild or not mild Omicron is in elderly. I think it, there's, there's very good evidence that it's milder, but I still think we're going to have a serious public health threat on our hands now with Omicron in elderly homes because so many of them haven't been vaccinated. And I don't think they're necessarily anti-vaccine as opposed to in some other parts of the world. I think there may be just that the people in Hong Kong have been cautious about getting vaccinated. They've put off the decision and now all of a sudden it's almost too late. Uh, We were doing well with zero COVID, but our luck's run out in in the last few weeks. In terms of the vaccines, uh, uh, Cindy makes the point in her piece that that, uh, China's homemade vaccines, um, Sinovac, Sinopharm and so on, they have been shown to be less effective than, let's say, Pfizer and Moderna and other vaccines we use in in the West. Do you think that, therefore, that, that in terms of, I'm trying to think of an end point to all this for, for China, you know, do, what what is the end point if the Chinese vaccines are nearly as effective as, as the Western ones? Um, especially if, as, as Cindy says in the piece, uh, Xi has made uh, zero COVID part of his political legacy, this idea that he will defeat the virus, that China will defeat the virus. Where, where do you see this all, all being able to end? 
I know they are working on a homemade mRNA vaccine, and maybe there's going to be some other kind of developments in vaccine technology or in antiviral technology that would allow uh, an exit from the pandemic uh, without large numbers of infections. So now in China, they've got 87% coverage with two doses. They're doing third doses with inactivated vaccines. Maybe later this year, they could think about fourth doses with a new technology like an mRNA vaccine if their vaccine works. Maybe the following year, they might have other technologies available or antivirals available. And there's also potential changes in the virus. Omicron, we know, is milder. Not, not mild, but milder. And in the future, who knows, the next variant might be even milder. And then I think that that would be a great decision then to hold off and to wait out the virus until it somehow evolves into a milder variant. But I don't think that's necessarily what's going to happen. The virus could go the other way as well. The next variant could, could go back and be a little bit more severe. It's not a requirement for viruses to, to become milder. Of course, as immunity builds up in humans, the impact of infections will be milder and milder. But the virus itself may not change a lot. So that, there's, there's a number of things that could happen in the coming year or two that would make a, a continuation now of the zero COVID approach kind of a, you know, a rational choice. But at the same time, I think that the difficulty of controlling Omicron, uh, the difficulty also of Delta, which hasn't disappeared, the costs of zero COVID and the very high vaccine coverage in the mainland mean that, that to me, there's less advantages of zero COVID now than there were maybe a year ago. That now with, with the vaccine, even if the vaccines are less effective, they're still effective, particularly against severe disease. That's been shown uh, very clearly. So I think there is, there is an argument to, to think about relaxing the measures sooner rather than later. You know, if you're not going to do it now, what's going to change in a year's time that would make it a more attractive decision then? And is that argument, I suppose it's a question actually for both of you, but is that argument being made in China? I mean, you say there is, Ben says there is an argument, but we've seen in the past, there was a government scientific advisor who suggested that it might be time for China to learn to live with COVID. And he was, uh, he was subjected to quite a, a nasty online witch hunt against him and was chastised for his comments. So is, is there an argument actually being made in, inside China, in, in public at least, about um, the need to start changing the, the policy. Well, the, the man you're talking about is Zhang Menhong, who is an <laughs> academic uh, at Shanghai Fudan University and one of the state epidemiologists. And you're right, he, he said last year, you know, we need to start thinking about living with COVID. And the online response, some people supported him, but others triggered basically a plagiarism inquiry into his alma mater, you know, that, accusing him of plagiarizing his dissertation, which is completely a witch hunt behavior thing to do. Now, he's still around. Nothing serious has happened to him other than like, online backlash, showing that a lot of people still prefer zero COVID. But there are others who dub him golden mouth because they think that he speaks the truth and that he's telling the truth. And that he also, he sometimes just goes off script, I guess, in the same way that Jonathan Van Tam can do sometimes. Like he's seen as an accessible, personable advisor, but he has stopped talking about living with COVID so much now, probably burnt by his experience last year. And, and Ben, I, I know that in Hong Kong, there are doctors who are posting on Facebook about this kind of stuff as well. Yeah, there's more dissenting views in Hong Kong than I think in mainland China. But just today, the South China Morning Post, or today, the 2nd of February, the South China Morning Post is reporting that Zhong Nansan, a very famous respiratory physician in, in Guangzhou, is raising the issue again of, of what's the end game for the pandemic because zero COVID won't, won't be there forever. But I, I think the, the sense is still not yet, but at least need to think ahead and plan a little bit ahead because anyway, we know that you can't suddenly stop these kind of policies. You need to have a, an exit plan, which takes months and months and months. I think 
in Singapore. They're in the middle of that now. They're certainly not near the end of a return to normal. And they've been doing it for six months, probably. So, so I, I think we recognise that we need to have some time for preparing the public, some time for actually implementing an exit plan. And that could take many months. It could take a year. And in Hong Kong, unfortunately, we've, we've had to, to, to think a little bit more now because the, the, our hand's been forced in Hong Kong. We've, we've got a lot of cases already. And if we focus too much on the containment measures to try and get back to zero cases, actually, we, we may be missing a chance to do better mitigation in the sense that actually a priority now should be to vaccinate elderly. And to me, that would be the absolute number one priority. But, but there hasn't been an enormous push to do that so far. Uh, in Hong Kong in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so, so the coverage is still, still very low, unfortunately, uh, and there's increasing numbers of cases. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you, Ben. And if you want to hear more about China, listen to Chinese Whispers, a fortnightly podcast from The Spectator, hosted by Cindy Yu on Chinese politics and society. Next up, James Hill, the author of The Spectator's Steerpike column, has written about what he calls the Zack Pack, it's a group made up of Zach Goldsmith, Carrie Johnson, and some other highly influential figures in the Westminster Corridors. James joins us now, along with Christian Calgi, a senior reporter at Guido Fawkes. James, in The Spectator this week, you talk about this powerful and important group who seem to be shaping Tory policy, and you refer to them as the Zach Pack, which is a reference to Zach Goldsmith. Can you tell us who the key players are in the Zach Pack? Yes, I think that the key thing to stress about this is that it's... A number of people in the top of the Conservative Party right now with an interest in the environment and who tend to have coalesced around Zach during his time as the MP for Richmond. Among them, of course, includes uh, Carrie Johnson, back then Carrie Simmons, who was recruited into Westminster to work as a parliamentary assistant at the start of Zach's term as an MP. Um, and along the way, another people have sort of joined as well. Uh, now you see in the House of Lords serving alongside Zach Goldsmith, there's people who were involved with Richmond Council there. There's also a number of special advisors with close links to the Conservative Animal Welfare Foundation and uh, the Conservative Environment Network as well. And it's just really interesting how a kind of small group has been very influential in policies which have huge ramifications for the country now, pushing things like uh, Net Zero and the Animal Sentience Bill. And it's just a very good time to look at that in light of what's been going on in the field of Afghanistan and Operation Nowzad and the recent revelations about what's been going on there. And Calgi, what did you make of James's analysis of the Zach Pack? Uh, and from your impression, how powerful or influential are they? I think it gets to the the root of a huge amount of Tory discontent at the moment. Uh, obviously, when Boris went up before the party uh, earlier this week, the thing that really got them to start returning to his side was a promise of more involvement in policy. And that is directly linked to what they perceive to be a sort of high and mighty clique, slightly disconnected from the electoral politics that got them elected in the the Red Wall and across the country, that is formulating a lot of this policy without consultation. It's quite think tanky, it's very wonkerish. And they're and they're sort of trying to take back control, really, of this group, which which does have a, a major sway over policy, both because of the friendship between Zach and the you know Boris and the rest of the Tory establishment, and obviously Carrie is a key player in that. 
James, in your piece, you connect obviously Boris's wife Carrie and Lord Goldsmith to the pen farthing evacuation. What seems to be the connection there, and, and sort of, are they defending themselves over it? Well, well Laura, it's, it's really interesting, and I think it sums up the confusion about what went on in those last few weeks in Afghanistan. Is that we still don't know who was authorizing what and when. And what came out last week was the release of emails from the Foreign Affairs Committee, which show officials in Lord Goldsmith's office saying, I mean, quoted in emails that the Prime Minister had authorised the evacuation of Penfarthing's animal sanctuary. Now, Zach Goldsmith had released a very carefully worded tweet about that, saying he authorised nothing which would put um, animals above human lives. But he he didn't turn up to the House of Lords last Thursday when he was expected to do so as part of the gentlemanly conventions of the Upper House. And at the time of going to press yesterday on Wednesday, there was no statement to the House of Lords. He'd only made one contribution on human rights in the Middle East. And so it's difficult to establish what went on. What we do know is that Carrie Johnson's friend, Dominic Dyer, was claiming from the start that there was a personal involvement for people from Number 10 and that they should you know, almost be proud of what went on there. Obviously, a lot of people feel very different. We've seen you know, hundreds, if not more than a 1,000 people left behind in Afghanistan. And so we need to really look at what went on there in order. So, for instance, things like the ongoing situation in Ukraine, future mistakes aren't made like that again. And, uh, Kalgi, this isn't the first time that there's been a, a wealthy, influential social group that have, that have influenced the highest realms of politics. I mean, how would you compare, for example, the Notting Hill set in Cameron's era to the Zach Pack or Richmond set, perhaps, which is, the, I know, another another possible name that, 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 that James <laughs> well, considered boy, for this. Well, I'm a Richmond boy, so, yeah. you know, going to get in the mainstream. But how, would you, how would you compare this particular set, the Richmond set, the Zach Pack, to other uh, former uh, previous Tory sets? Well, I think the key difference is the, the sort of the accountability aspect. You know, the, the Notting Hill set, which you think back, you know, Cameron, Osborne, Gove, uh, you know, they were elected both, both by, you know, well, obviously Cameron by Tory members with a platform that had been debated and, and put, put before them and, and as MPs, whereas now there's this, there's this whole sort of backroom court that no one really knows what's happening and that therefore makes it very difficult to understand policy proposals, to understand decisions that are then being taken by the Prime Minister and it also it also links very closely, I think, to Boris's innate um, the biggest issue as as a Tory leader, which is he's not particularly ideological, and is very loyal to friends, and therefore you end up with this situation where he is taking a huge amount of advice from unelected backroom advisers at the expense of. Tory MPs getting increasingly frustrated at the process and the decisions. Yeah, I think one of the things I wanted to get across in the piece here was just emphasising that, you know, connections are a cornerstone of politics throughout history. But what's interesting with Boris is that he likes to run his administration as a series of competing courts of factions. And there's a vacuum at the top. And none of this could happen without the Prime Minister choosing what to do next. Now there's been briefings about potentially the, Ch- the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff being axed, about certain people being brought in, Linton Crosby potentially being brought in. So the reason I wanted to look at this was because there is a vacuum that is going on at the top and these ideas have been seized on. But the question is, as you know, Calgary says, is accountability and it's the Prime Minister's choice and the prerogative and who he chooses to listen to. And that's why social connections are so interesting to this Prime Minister. I think the difference with Cameron, for instance, is that you know he was able to, I think, to a greater degree, separate the personal and the political. You know, when he 
put Michael Gove as chief whip in 2014. He knew that with the election coming up, and he was thinking, I've got to sideline him, put him out of the limelight for a bit, but that he thought it wouldn't influence their friendship. And it was very clear also with Cameron who was the boss and how he ran his number 10 operation. It was a very tight clique. That was the benefit. But at the moment, there's all this, there's a vacuum at the top. People don't know what's going on. The order's going out. And as you see with the release of these emails from the Foreign Affairs Committee, no one's sure what's going on. Even six, seven months on, we're still not sure what went on with Afghanistan. And that's what prompted this article. And James, it's often said that Carrie Johnson is, is involved in a lot of this sort of direction behind a lot mm. of this environmental policy and a sort of animal related policy. But reading your piece, it almost feels as though Zach, who's sort of been directing Carrie in a way, do you think that's a fair assessment? I think that both of them have a very sincere, from what we can tell, their public statements, very sincere belief in animal conservation. And I think, obviously, it's worth remembering that Zach brought Carrie in and worked in politics and brought into the sort of party. I'm not sure the extent to which it can be ascribed to one person or, or the other. Uh, what's clear is that there are a number of ties, uh, formal through organisation and social links. And you read, uh, you know, reports, press cuttings over the last decade as well that really emphasise that I think on on key issues they are very much of, of one mind. Um, I wouldn't like to speculate as to you know what extent is one or the other but what we can see is that they've both been championing uh, causes which should now be taken up by the Prime Minister and adopted into government policy and so it's something just well worth looking at when discussing what Number 10 is doing and who's authorising what and when. Calgi, do you think there are rival sets to the Zach Pack? Is there, uh, for example, now uh, an anti-green clique of Tories who are pushing back on some of this? Well, it's not as black and white as that. I mean, I think, for example, of the the MP Mark Jenkinson, who was elected in 2019. Now, he is as no-nonsense as they come on a lot of the green agenda, right? He is very traditional on this, quite Tory, not, not in the Carrie and Zach sphere of thinking. But at the same time, he's a member of the Conservative Environmental Network. He's not an anti-green person. He's not a climate denier. He accepts that there are policy issues that need to that need to come forward here. I think it's a case of priority and also exactly what policies are going forward. And again, going back to this thing, where's the debate? It just seems like it's imposed on high and Tory MPs are told to get back in line. Where's been the Tory debate in response to the energy crisis about actually cutting green levies on on energy bills? It just seems to have been you know, mentioned in Parliament by people like Steve Baker and the Downing Street operation, the number 11 operation, have just pushed on regardless and gone straight for the straight for the rebate option or, you know, other reforms. And I think that really is the frustration that Tory MPs want a greater say in policymaking and setting what policies are priorities versus what are perhaps, in some of their minds, a sort of optional extra that sort of posh Tory think tankers, you know, like Zach Goldsmith, they can sit back, they can think about, they can smoke a cigar over. And they, wouldn't it be nice if the world was this sort of, you know, Disneyland sort of, you know, bunny-loving place, when actually, in their minds, there's more day-to-day things to deal with people's livelihoods in their constituencies than, than they will address. I, I think it's worth emphasising. I mean, a number of these policies, you know, are popular when you poll them, etc. And it would be wrong to kind of portray it as a sort of, you know, Richmond set red wall in such black and white terms as you say. But it's worth noting are these sort of some of these issues first or second tier when people cast their votes at the ballot boxes will they be thinking about for instance a ban on trail hunting say which has been something proposed and laid down um, last month 
it's about, I think, priorities. Politics is about priorities. And you remember what Linton Crosby said to Cameron before the 2015 election, which was get rid of the barnacles, you know, focus on the key issues. And that's, I think, the danger as we're approaching two years to go, two and a half years to go till the election or thereabouts. What's going to win these Tories their vote, their seats back? And talking to a number of them, they're just concerned that, I mean, some of this stuff you know, deserves debate, etc. But a lot of the things are quite tricky, like the Animal Sentience Bill, potentially you know, looking at you know, lobsters feeling pain, etc. I'm not sure how many votes in the key marginals will be decided by these things. <laughs> exactly. Lobsters feeling pain. I mean, I imagine the Zac Pack were also the sort of people to hail a victory when Fortnum and Mason's banned selling foie gras. And you just think, at what point is this relevant to the lives of ordinary people? And, and can we focus on the issues that actually matter here rather than, let's be honest, a sort of pet project, if you'll pardon the pun. And, <laughs> and just to finish on, we've been hearing obviously recently that Boris is potentially going to start kind of clearing out and have a bit of a kind of changing of the guard. Do you think there are going to be kind of any changes made to the way he runs his government in this kind of court-like way? Well, I mean, it would be changing the habit of a lifetime, wouldn't it? So I'm not too sure how much it's the you know good king versus bad advisors. I'm sure there'll be some departures, some new faces brought in. Every prime minister demands new toys. Steve Gordon Brown tried it with Stephen Carter. How much it will actually change things, I'm not too sure. But we shall wait and see. I'm not sure that some of the briefings that have been going around about it being you know a massive clear out will necessarily come to pass we all know boris likes to win around every room he's in so uh, i'm not sure how much there'll be a dramatic u-turn i mean we, we also know there's one member of the zach pack that definitely isn't going anywhere in any, any <laughs> staff reshuffle so i think that is probably the key player in this <laughs> thank you calgi thank you james and finally this weekend marks the 70th anniversary of queen elizabeth ii's ascension to the throne Graham Viney, author of The Last Hurrah, South Africa and the Royal Tour of 1947, writes in this week's magazine about how Princess Elizabeth was prepared for that moment. He joins us now, along with the royal commentator and biographer, Angela Levin, author of Harry, A Biography of a Prince. Graham, you write in The Spectator this week about Princess Elizabeth's formative years, which prepares her for the duties of monarchy, Perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit about her childhood. Was it a happy childhood? I'd be extremely happy, and she came from a very happy and nurturing home. Of that, there's no doubt. The king had, when he was courting her mother, had visited Glam's castle and noted what a happy home Lady Strathmore had created there, and they deliberately set out to recreate that, as opposed to his rather stiff and unhappy at Sandringham. Graham, you talk a little bit about the chief influences on uh, the present Queen's life. Can you tell us a bit about who they were? Yeah, well, obviously her parents, her governess, Marianne Crawford, Sir Henry Martin, the Vice Provost of Eton. I think the the Royal Tour of South Africa was a uh, an experience. It was a big influence. Uh, it sounds like it's actually quite a perhaps surprisingly small set of people uh, for, for, for the early part of her yes, life. Yes, very, 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 very secluded childhood. That's the truth of the matter. Yes. And made, made more so by being sort of held up at Windsor during the war. Mm. Angela, could you talk a little bit about what you see as the characteristics that Queen Elizabeth inherited from her father? Yes. Okay. Can I just add that I thought... Um, the, the Queen Ma- Queen Mary, her grandmother, had a huge influence on her, actually. But I can come back to that later, but really important. Um, the things she got from her father, well, 
children remember quite small things as well as big things. And he uh, taught her to ride at three. And we know how much she's loved horses. And that has lasted throughout her life, that passion. He gave her her first corgi when she was five. And we know she had up to 10 of these corgis. So he had the small things that were very important when you're small, and also the big ones, because it was about having a loving home. It was about being dutiful. And she admired him um, tremendously because he overcame his sadness. She was a very observant child, and she um, particularly admired his struggle over his stammer. And that steadfastness has stayed with her throughout her life. And um, she did have a very hot temper like he had when she was very small, but her mother helped her to manage that. I mean, now we absolutely wouldn't know anything about a temper, but that was also very important. And she was, like her father, neat and methodical. I don't know whether she learned that or it was in the genes, but she had... 34 toy horses which were had their saddle on and everything and before she would go to bed every night she would line them up in a neat row outside the bedroom door so she wasn't a messy child whatsoever I think and Angela would you say that I mean genetically that probably came from Queen Mary the the neatness and the orderliness it, it could have done yes, I it don't think it done. came from her mother <laughs> It didn't come from her mother. Yes, she did. She encouraged her to to stay tidy and to keep a diary every day. I mean, I think she was she was she was cleverer than her husband, wasn't she? And, yes, um, she, yes. She wanted her to be an upright person, but also very good at making conversation. And the main thing she wanted to to be good at in terms of education was writing. She wanted that to be neat rather than actually get a good education. I mean, I think her father wasn't that keen on it either, but Grandmother Mary was very, very strict about that. Well, actually, so you mentioned uh, earlier the influence of Grandmother Mary. Uh, perhaps, Angela, would you, would you mind speaking a little bit more about that and what you see as the primary influences of Queen Mary? It, it's very interesting because baby Elizabeth spent a year with her when her parents went to Australia. Now, I'm not a doctor or a psychologist, but that initial bonding is quite interesting, really. And after the abdication, her grandmother insisted that uh, her level of learning was uh, increased because all she had was an hour and a half a day. The rest of it was dancing and riding horses and having an hour and a half's rest. She was very, very keen on protocol and duty. And she also believed in repressing all emotion and never to smile in public. Well, I don't think the Queen has followed that totally, but we do see that she doesn't show emotion and she hasn't wanted royal senior members of the royal family to, well, for example, hold hands or to be very affectionate in public. She encouraged to be self-contained, also to learn poetry by heart because she thought it was a very good discipline. And she was the one who took her and her sister Margaret to um, imbue them with some sort of culture round the museums, round the art galleries, which nobody else showed any interest in taking her to do at all. And Graham, could you talk a little bit about the moment when Princess Elizabeth 
learns of her father's death and what is about to become of her. Well, I mean, she was in Kenya. Um, uh, she spent the night at treetops. There is a rather wonderful story about an eagle appearing and sort of landing on the, I think, the railing of the, the balcony of, of the the lodge and the trees and then soaring off, which was a filmic moment, I would say. But I think they were back at the little lodge they'd been given by the time the news was actually broken to her. And uh, you write... Prince, your... Philip, Prince Philip wrote the news to her. Everybody else sort of didn't want to, and he did, which he said later was one of the most difficult things of his life. And she then had an hour alone just to think about it and to get a bit of control over herself, I expect. And interestingly enough, a black morning suit had been forwarded to the next place they were staying because all senior royals take black with them in case there is some tragedy. And so they had to rush somebody to the airport when she landed to run up the stairs so she could put on a black dress. These things are sort of fascinating when you hear about them later in, much later on. Graham, I'd like to just ask you a bit more about the South African tour, which you write quite a bit about in the piece and also mention at the start of this podcast. Uh, and in your piece, you say that, um, as you see it, in this South African tour, the many strands of the princess's formative years had been conjoined. Could you explain a little to our listeners what, to you, what you mean? Well, I, I think it was the first time they were in one of the dominions. Um, so you were discovering that you had a lot more people um, than you had in your own country, that they were of varied races. And, of course, the South African situation was fraught. It was a segregated society. It was before apartheid. But the king was anxious to greet all his subjects. But there was a danger for the Afrikaans opposition, which is what was Smuts was about to be swamped by, um, um, branding him a kafabuti, which means someone who's too friendly to blacks. So he wasn't even allowed to pin medals or shake hands with black ex-servicemen that he um, greeted, lest they made political capital. And this went against the grain. It obviously went against the grain for Princess Elizabeth too. Um, there are letters, you know, remarking on this. And Angela, just to finish on, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about any similarities you see between the relationship between Elizabeth and Charles and, and how that might kind of affect the next period of succession. That's a tricky one, really, because the Queen, when she, she was made Queen so young, and she was very, very keen that she would do a good job of this, and her sense of duty came far beyond anything else. And she spent a lot of time away, and I think this indication that Grandma Mary told her that not to show any emotion is that when she came back from long trips, and I think at once she was away for several months, she didn't rush over to Prince Charles and pick him up like Diana did with her children. Um, she tapped him on the head and, and uh, carried on talking. And you, if you look at the picture closely, you see he was pretty devastated, this little boy. I think she became a keener grandmother than she was a mother, to be honest. But she, uh, as the children 
multiplied and got older, I think she did her best. But we've seen several occasions now when we see that it's been a battle with her between her sense of duty and her feelings of being a mother or grandmother. And sometimes the duty wins and sometimes the, the motherly instinct wins. It, it must be incredibly difficult for her to do. Um, but I think she has always felt that duty comes first. Angela and Graham, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read everything we've discussed, as well as more. And if you subscribe today, you'll get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And do join us again next week.